Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we feature real, different conversations. Because around here, we believe that real conversations can and do change the world. Speaking of changing the world, today we have a, a, a guy on who actually did that. His name is Robert Rosenberg. And uh, he's a legendary entrepreneur, CEO, and now a brand new author. Robert ran Duncan for over 30 years. And he took over for his dad, William, when the business was about 13 years old, it was a group of smaller restaurants. And um, Robert took over as CEO from his dad when he was only 23 years old. It was 1963. Shortly after taking over, he uh, had a tremendous insight and he niched down to focus on coffee and donuts. In his stunning 35-year run, Robert grew the company from $10 million to over $2 billion with over 3,000 outlets, and he created a brand and a bunch of products that uh, we all love, and many in America and around the world love and adore. Along the way, he was also CEO of Baskin-Robbins for a time, and you're going to hear about that and some of the cool things he did there. His brand new book is called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. And I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed this conversation. You're going to get his key learnings for entrepreneurs, uh, you'll, you'll hear the real story behind one of the most legendary marketing campaigns of all time. It's time to make the donuts. And the real story of how Munchkins, a.k.a. Donut Holes, came to be and so much more. Even if you're not an entrepreneur or CEO, you're going to love getting to know Robert Rosenberg. Now, my friends at NetSuite are the world's number one cloud ERP system. You can learn more at netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk bring data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D to E. And you might recall on episode 186, we had on Naveen Chada, who leads Mayfield, one of the top venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And after Naveen's visit on this podcast, we had some further conversations with him and his team. And I'm proud to tell you that we've been collaborating on a new podcast series called Conscious VC, wherever you get legendary podcasts. And we have some fantastic conversations with radical candor author Kim Scott, education pioneer and founder of Khan Academy, Saul Khan, and many others. Our goal with Conscious VC is to have real conversations that explore how to build businesses that shape the future while making a giant difference all at the same time. So look for Conscious VC on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get legendary podcasts. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Robert, it sure is a uh, an absolute thrill to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, Chris. Now, I have a zillion questions for you, but before I get started on my list, uh, I'm just curious, what's on your mind these days, Robert? Oh, my goodness. A lot of things are on my mind, but, but fundamentally, I'm trying to uh, to tell people about a book that I've just written that represents uh, sort of the 50 first years of 50 years of our brand, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, and part of the time I was also CEO of Baskin Robbins. So I tell that story and basically the lessons that I learned, the successes and the setbacks that were engaged in all of that uh, in the hopes that it will be of some value to, to people, even those just designing a life or, or people who are engaged in business and those who are so would be entrepreneurs, the, the benefits of franchising, the lessons I learned about persistence and about uh, the need for apprenticeship. Uh, for those people who are sort of mid-sized or growing through adolescence in business, sort of the lessons learned about planning and how to build a, an effective, uh, recruit and retain an effective organization. And maybe even for larger companies, people engaged that have boards of directors, how we organize that board. So really, it's sort of a buffet of experiences over a 50-year time period that I think may be of interest to people and may hopefully the reason I took the time to write it and the reason I'm here talking about it is basically I hope it's of some value to people. I have no doubt that it will be. And I want to thank you for writing it. And this may sound over the top, but you'll tell me. But I think when you've had a career like you've had, 
you almost have an obligation to write this book because I think many of us in business want to hear from you and want to hear from uh, incredibly successful leaders. And I know when I was a young man, Robert, I started my first company at 18 and I I didn't have any education. I didn't have any money, um, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so uh, particularly because I didn't have any education, I read a lot. And the books of the entrepreneurs, uh, the marketers, the founders, the CEOs that I read uh, back then, particularly, and even till today, make a giant difference in my life. And so I think you've made a major contribution here. Well, thank you for saying that. And I, I have to say that throughout my career, um, basically, there were a lot of setbacks. I want no one to believe that it wasn't a, a bumpy road. I tell my children often, life is lumpy, and that's true of business as well as in life. And I found that for me, critical moments of growth occurred most often from ideas that I got from a book. My younger brother, Donald, often would tell me that uh, when the student is ready, a teacher will appear. And for me, that teacher most often came in the form of a book. Some of my most transformational moments over the 50-year career that I, uh, that, that I can talk about really, and even to this day. It really come as a result of uh, learning from, mostly from books, but also from colleagues and seminars and, and other things. But, but a lot, mostly, I'd have to say from books. And so uh, maybe take me there. What are, what are some of the books that influenced you uh, the most? I'd say the most transformational one occurred in the 10 years into my CEO-ship of, of Duncan. In the first five years, uh, I had come out of school. and taken over. I was 25, cocky, um, took over a, a family business that was in some extremists, fighting for its life, really choking on on too much, too many things, too many activities, indigestion. Business can die as much from indigestion, too much on its plate as it can from starvation, not having enough. And this one was suffering. I wasn't necessarily dying, but suffering dramatically from indigestion. We, we, solve that problem as a management team, focused on the core. We had eight little businesses. We divested ourselves of all of them, focused on one, burnished it up, standardized it, which was Dunkin' Donuts in our midst, which was not a standardized business at all. It it was like a diner in many respects. And we went to market with that one business. Within five years, we were a publicly owned company. Hmm. And things were good. And the market price of the company was dramatic. And here I was at 30 years old, sitting on a business that was market cap of 120 or 150 million dollars and and sitting on top of the world and then uh, I took the business almost off a cliff changed the mission changed the focus of the business from a focused coffee and donut shop chain to a, a chain of uh, I thought franchising I got seduced by Wall Street I wanted to keep the earnings growing at 50 percent a year which is impossible it would have been larger than the GNP of the, of, of the country had I continued that but I was I was a kid, cocky, didn't realize that. Uh, and that created all kinds of problems that next five years to the point where uh, we had some franchisees who were disgruntled. Well, well be, we took our eye off the ball. I started to start other chains, then negotiate for other businesses. And I was sitting in my living room in the midst of all of this tumult and reading a book by David Halberstam called The Best and the Brightest. This book by Halberstam was a tale of the Kennedy and Johnson administration of the Vietnamese War. Hmm. And as Halberstam tells the tale, basically the war was being waged and the administration was being led by a lot of Ivy Leaguers, the best and the brightest our country has to offer. But they had failed to go into the hamlets and the towns where the war was being waged to find out what was on the minds of the townspeople, the mayors, uh, the leaders of communities, small communities. They were relying on third-hand body counts and lots of other data that suggested they may be winning. And Halberstam said that the real core of the problem was the fact that, that the best and the brightest of our country were suffering from what he called hubris. Hubris is the Greek word for arrogance. And it was a transformational moment for me. I remember vividly to this day, sitting in that chair, I can tell you what it felt like 
And I said, oh my God, Halberstam could be talking about me. That is me. Hmm. And I, as I said, it was a transformational moment. Went back to this team, to the senior leaders who had been following me through this and acknowledged what was happening. And we did a 180. Uh, we put into place processes and policies, strengthened our board, and created an advisory council. We decided we'd go and visit each of us 100 stores uh, a year with our district managers, learn that what they were wrestling with, see if our management by objectives program was working. And we would talk to the individual franchisees, get their feedback, create an advisory council of franchisees to guide us and help us. We apologize for our error of our ways and we invited them in to help us fix it, which they were more than willing to do. Mm. And it franchisees. Was a, a learning moment. I was now maybe 35. So it was 10 years. I'd love to say I came into the job at 25 and was all grown up, but I wasn't clearly. And this was a grow up moment. Uh, and it, it was essential. And for the next four eras of five years each with different responses, different strategies, uh, basically, we never looked back. Uh, we were well on our way not to make that mistake again. And, and uh, I'm forever thankful. And that came out of a book. But a lot of things for me came out of books. That's not the first. And was it the mistake of hubris, Robert? Yes. Hmm. It was, it was the, the importance of humility to do a lot more listening than talking. Uh, there, there was a lot of contribution, a lot of skill, a lot of benefits that came from a broad range of people. I needed more of that. I needed to do more listening and less talking. Success can be a, a huge impediment to future success. It's a little bit like chocolates for breakfast. It can, it can, it can be delicious for a while, but it can also be a bad thing. And in my case, <laughs> it didn't serve, it didn't serve me well. And, and I, it, it was a, a, an important turning point for me and for our company. And so what advice do you have for younger entrepreneurs, CEOs who, um, who experience exactly what you experienced, which is, you know, you took this company over and I, I, I'd be, I'd be curious to ask you about your dad in a minute or two, but you took this company over, transformed it pretty radically. It wasn't named Dunkin' Donuts at the time, correct? Universal Food Systems. It was a, as I said, a portfolio of little businesses. It was, it was a really <laughs> a kind of mixed up match of lots of little business, eight little businesses. So called Universal Food Systems. No, it wasn't. But uh, what would my advice be? Around hubris in particular. Well, stay humble. And listen, listen a lot more. I mean, they said, God gave you two ears and one mouth, do twice as much listening <laughs> as you do talking. And make sure you get input from, from people, particularly on the front lines. The last three feet of the sailor for us are critical. And there are people who are closer and in touch, particularly in a franchise system. So a lot of talent out there. A lot of great ideas came from franchise on the product ideas, uh, design ideas. Uh, in, in every element of the business, the uh, purchasing uh, activities, uh, uh, marketing ideas, uh, the whole notion of of uh, some of munchkins, uh, iced coffee, all came from franchisees. Munchkins came from a franchisee? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, I think you changed the world with munchkins. <laughs> That's sweet. What say. a genius idea. It really was. Uh, it was uh, the wife uh, of our franchise owner in Hartford, Connecticut. Her name was Edna Demery. And uh, she basically, he, I got a call in 1972. Let me set the stage for you. Yeah, please. There were gas lines, Nixon's weights and price controls. Uh, I was having all of these battles. Uh, I, it was just sort of the end before we really got religion, understood what we we're doing wrong. I got a call from Bob Demery, who is a, a friend and a franchise owner. He was the guy that taught me how to make donuts in our third store in Natick, Mass, when we were both teenagers. And, <laughs> and he called me and he said, you know, he said, you got to come down and see what Edna's done. It's unbelievable. And for years, what we would do and with our donuts, our first cuts, they're called, we would take the middles out only at Halloween and we'd fry them and we'd either put powdered sugar on them and we'd put them on little cellophane bags and put them on the little potato chip holders, the little clips, and only sell yeah. them for a week or two. He said, Edna came up and developed a brand new cutter, and she's cutting these little holes that are one-fifth of donut size. So they're reduced in calories. She's filling them with jelly and apple raspberry and apple filling and, 
and strawberry and all kinds of fillings. She's finishing them all different ways. She's piling them high on gold trays and she's putting them out in what we call the fancy case. And our business is up 20%. People are clamoring for it. You got to come down and see it. <laughs> and so we got in a car, Tom Schwartz, the COO of the company, myself and Bob Camerchan, who was the head of marketing. We drove down the very next day within a day or two but it was close i mean this was big yeah. news and we got there and lo and behold we got to hartford on albany avenue i think it was the store in the center of town and sure enough it was exactly as he portrayed it we knew we had a winner on our hands we went back to the ad agency that uh had helped us with the hamburger chain before we got out of that business it was a small boston agency at the time called hill holiday which then emerged as a huge advertising agency over time. But but we asked them to help us. And the first name that Steve Cosmopolis, the guy who was the creative head of Hill Holiday Cosmopolis, he said, why don't we call them Penny Poppers? We said, my God, that's a great name. Dunkin' Donuts, DD, Penny Poppers, PP. That might work. But we were in the middle of wage and price controls, the, the oil embargo. Prices were escalating daily. We said, no, we thought for a week. And we said, no. I don't think we can use that name. We'll never be able to keep them anywhere near a penny. And and finally, uh, uh, Cosmopolis or someone from Hill Holiday said, you know, every year, uh, CBS, I think it is, and dusts off uh, The Wizard of Oz. And the, the little people in The Wizard of Oz, Munchkins, really might be a great name for this brand, for this extension. And uh, we turned to our attorney, a board member, uh, a guy by the name of Archie Southgate, and he checked out and found out it was owned by Jack's Cookie Company in Louisiana. And lo and behold, they had owned the name but had no use for it, couldn't figure it out. So for a dollar a year, we, le- we, we, we got the use of the name for Munchkins, and that was the beginning of a product that now look back 50 years later is still a mainstay on the menu and a treat for people all the time, uh, not <laughs> only just for Halloween, but uh, 24-7 uh, and 12 months a year. Well, and Robert, uh, do you have any idea how many munchkins uh, people have consumed since Edna's incredible insight in 1972? <laughs> I, I, I'd have to get a team of computer experts. It would be billions, right? Yeah, you need a supercomputer to figure out what your sales have been. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the other genius about it, you know, one of this is a side note, but you know, one of the things that seems to be popular in restaurants before all uh, COVID stuff started was you know, tapas and more and more sharing and tasting menus and and so forth and so on and, and tasting with wine and food in a group. And, you know, we love that as human beings. And so the thing about the munchkin, of course, is I remember when my mom would come home with a box full of munchkins, you know, and my sister would have one and she'd say, oh, that one was really good. And, and so it's the same thing. You could have a taste of all sorts of different donuts and really eat only one donut or you when you're a kid, pr- probably the equivalent of two or three, but... <laughs> But you can have all these different tastes and not so much guilt. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's been been a hit. It's been a hit ever since. And uh, would you call that a new category of donut? Or or how do you think about what the munchkin was? In in our language, a product extension. And we've had a lot of those. But but yeah, that's what I would call a a product extension. And in in the retail business, you rely a lot on news. Uh, The need to have to continually create news for consumers to keep it interesting. And uh, products and product extensions and new products, uh, along with promotions and price offs, are all part of that um, activity on an annual calendar, marketing calendar. And when you first got there and Edna presents you with these things and and so forth and so on, what was it that sort of told you and your colleagues, wait a minute, I think Edna might be a genius here and really on to something? How do you recognize a breakthrough like that? It was obvious that it's sales. When sales go up 20, in, in, in our business in those years, 6% same-store sales increase, which was the key metric that retailers measure. The same sales against the same period a year ago could be for a month, a week. When same-store sales are up 20%, that indicates you really have touched a nerve in the consumer, that there's something new, something unusual going on. You're filling some need that you hadn't seen heretofore. And for me, a lot of things, particularly in marketing, is serendipitous. It's trying a lot of different things, trying to solve a lot of problems. You can't always figure out what the consumer needs until you try, and then you watch it carefully, and the consumer will let you know, particularly in a chain like ours, it's got lots of locations, they, I mean, quickly let you know, yeah, we like this. This does meet a need of ours, and we can really use this. And then, you know, and you try a lot of things, and those that don't work out well, in my in our case, we, we basically stop them. 
those things that worked out well, we then would roll out to the whole system. But it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of a planning, thinking, and the ideas come from everywhere. We have product managers, very sophisticated, but a lot of ideas come from franchise owners. Hmm. Right from the field. It's back to the same thing that was occurring in the Vietnamese war. You know, there's a lot of wisdom on the front lines. Yeah. And so you just have to pay attention to the wisdom on the front lines. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. And you have to have communication networks like store visits and advisory councils so it doesn't get clogged where it flows freely. Yeah. And you have to be aware, you know, that there there is a listening, there is a willingness to listen, a willingness to let a good idea have a life, to let it breathe. Yeah, fascinating. Now, maybe we could go back to your dad. You took the business over from your dad at 25. Is that correct? That's correct. And so maybe tell me a little bit about what that was like. My dad was, uh, was a uh, um, self-made man. He a- eighth grade dropout, bigger than life, big physically, big personality, always wanted to be successful. And, and was successful, had an inspirational life, but was shaped a lot by the Depression. He grew up in the middle of the Depression, and uh, my grandfather, his father, had failed uh, with a market in the middle of the Depression uh, from debt, and my father had suffered from real deprivation and had to go to work at a young age to help support his family. And he was scarred, I think, by those uh, activities. He would often tell me, that um, he met guys on the golf course that had once claimed they were worth millions of dollars, but they had then lost it. Events had turned against them, and he'd say, shame on them. And so my dad always had wanted to equitize his, his uh, interest in the business. He wanted, he wanted to be a millionaire after taxes. He wanted to be secure. And hmm. I, I, I didn't you know, live that same kind of life. I had a whole different kind of upbringing uh, and, and a different set of circumstances. And um, one of the things that we had to do, our styles were different uh, and our objectives were different. Once I was in the business and we were doing well, I wanted to grow it. I I wanted to keep it as a family business. And he had continually wanted to sell it. In fact, my second year in business school, I accompanied him to New York to what was a, I didn't know what the name was, then a private equity buyer. He was trying to get a million and a half dollars for his business. He was uh, uh, exasperated. He had had a partner who helped him in his early business, this industrial feeding business, who was my uncle. Uh, and he couldn't get along with my uncle. And, then, and in 1955, he bought my uncle out for the then book value of the business. And what did my uncle do? Lo and behold, my uncle took that money and started a competitive donut chain, not burdened by all these eight little businesses, and were overtaking Duncan in that category. So we had stagnated earnings. We had a complicated business. We had a competitor breathing down our neck, but not just a competitor, a relative who my father had uh, liked initially and thought of as a mentor, but ultimately thought of as a bean counter, told all their common friends, they were, they were brother and sister-in-law, that, that, that he was a millstone around his neck, but he's now overtaking him. My uncle mm-hmm. Harry was now getting Horatio Alger Awards. They were on national television. It was driving my father crazy. So he tried to sell the business, couldn't find a buyer, had turned to an executive vice president to run the business on a day-to-day basis. So there were little friction points. One of them was uh, even as the business started to take off after we started to streamline it and focus on just the donut and coffee business, I still found myself in front of prospective buyers because he still wanted to sell it. The price had now gone from a million and a half. Nate Cummings, the guy who had bought Sarah Lee Consolidated Foods, was now offering me $7.5 million in the Waldorf Towers a few years later uh, as the business started to progress. And uh, I am... My father was still trying to sell it, and I was trying to keep it. Uh, <laughs> and so there was, you can imagine, there's a, a little bit of friction. And I had to figure out, when the heck do you sell a business? And my mm. dad would say, you know, so do, doing okay now. But, you know, and I would say, well, you know, we got to keep going, and we, we're really hitting it well. And he said, well, if not, you know, when do you sell? And I, and I had to come up with an idea. My objective, I'm pretty proud of this, actually. I said, you know, you sell a business when you can't achieve your objectives consistently. You then turn it over to someone else who can. He would then maintain, well, then you didn't get top price. I said, well, I never would know when the top was, but at least, I mean, the obje- so long as you can achieve your objectives, and in those days, our objectives was uh, 50% compound rate of growth, and we were, <laughs> we were achieving it, you know, and then I, I, you know, I watched the business go from not able 
1963 to, to sell for a million and a half dollars to the public offering in 1968 at 20 million to 350 million or 300, sorry, 320 million in, in 1989 to 6 billion roughly today. So, um, I, I think my <laughs> formula uh, is right. If so long as you can achieve your objectives and even our more modest objectives of growing at 10 to 15% in earnings per share, uh, was achievable. There's uh, every good reason to hold on to it. And if you have the energy and the foresight and the, and the willingness to, and, you know, and the desire to want to hold on, you can. So that, that was, uh, that, that was one of the, the, the points of, of difference between my dad and myself. Hmm. Did he forgive you? Uh, my dad wasn't a forgiving kind of guy. <laughs> the most common word in his vocabulary was more. And uh, that was in nature. He was a hard driving guy. And he, he then went on after we went public, he went on to start uh, raising and uh, breeding and raising harness horses, race horses. And he was very successful in that business as well, too. And, hmm. he, he and what advice would you have for children taking over a business from a parent? And of course, in your case, and I think it's often the case, the parent stays involved at one level or another for quite some time with the business. What advice would you have? I have found, I totally agree with you, Chris. I have found that uh, even in the, f the case of my dad, my dad had asked me to take over the business to beat his competitor, his brother-in-law, and and to equitize his holdings. Uh, and he, he, he relinquished his office to me and his assistant, Lee Schultz, and he moved 80 miles away to a farm in New Hampshire to raise and breed harness horses. I found out later in life, <laughs> not only he, but all founders never really see themselves as retired. Right. <laughs> I wished I had known that at, at, at 30. Uh, they don't see themselves as retired. And, and um, there is a great opportunity if you're a child uh, or a relative uh, to go into a family business. It's a wonderful opportunity, but it does come with its own challenges. And one of those challenges is uh, and most of the businesses in, in the world are family businesses. Yes, uh, of course. But uh, unfortunately, only about uh, less than a third of them I actually make it to the next generation. And and fewer still, I think it's down to 12%, make it to the third Right. The second generation tends to F it up. And the third generation, if the second generation doesn't F it up, completely blows it up, <laughs> typically. But a lot of those things I, I, I would maintain occur as a result of communications and and, uh, and the backstory that, that occurs in a lot of families. Uh, and so my advice is that it requires a lot of talk and thinking beforehand. You really have to understand the founder's objectives. And what the founder's attitudes are. Does the founder see that success is really a generational matter? That he's really successful if the business is perpetuated generation to generation? Or does the founder think that he created it and he's entitled to har harvest all of the rewards from it? It depends. Mm. Different, different founders have different objectives. There are, there are family members. You know, there are many, there could be many children in a family. Not all of them are engaged in the business. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, that can lead to friction and jealousies. It's 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 a wonderful opportunity, but there are some significant challenges you have to be alerted to. And I think today, unlike 1960s, today there are many consulting firms that will help families sort their way through these issues mm -hmm. in a non-confrontational way, well in advance of the time issues happen. Another flashpoint. Uh, oftentimes. The next generation, in order for business to continually grow and survive and thrive, for that matter, because the competition is constantly changing, the consumer is constantly changing, and the business, in order to thrive, has to constantly change. And that sometimes are friction points between the next generation and the generation that founded it. It requires new rules, new processes, new procedures. And that, that can be, people can see it from different points of view. They say, that, you know, when you get beyond roughly 100 people, uh, the CEO can't know more than a hundred. Uh, mm -hmm. I was a good memory. I knew a lot more than that, but, but there is a time when you have to then rely on managers to manage the business. So you become a manager of managers rather than a hands-on manager. And that's a different style and a different yes. requirement. And the business has to live through that. So those are all the kinds of activities that, that come in a family business, very unique, great opportunities, 
but some challenges and those challenges have to be have to be sorted out and there is help available to help you do that and it was it tough as a son to have to sort of uh, be steely spine and and push back on your dad in some of those moments he loved me and i knew he loved me and i loved him and <laughs> we we would have some some heated moments but there was the love that kept it all together and uh, and uh, for that i'm always grateful so uh, i guess there were there were tight moments but there was never talk of a divorce uh, <laughs> you know i you know we appreciated each other you know he was my hero growing up and uh, and as i got older i got to see some of his weaknesses as well as his strengths but he had some significant strengths in it and they were a big inspiration to me and and it was always you know part of it was to keep in the business but i wanted to please my dad that was yeah, one of sure. the driving forces behind my persistence and my willingness to want to keep going and uh, part of it was i love what i was doing and i thought we were really going to be successful uh, and, and i always wanted to please him hmm. i don't know i'm no psychologist but i would imagine there are very few children who don't want to make their parents happy right i think that's true yeah now i'm also curious you made this seminal decision to, I would describe it as niche down, to focus on donuts and coffee. You had all these other things going on. And it was one, of, it seems like, if I understand the story right, one of the big, big early decisions was to focus niche down and go for it on donuts. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that decision and what it was like? Well, basically, when I went away to college, the first five stores or so were incredibly successful. Then I went away to college and I came back and I worked in different businesses in the industrial feeding business, running cafeterias and canteen carts and making pizzas and, and pizza stores. And, and then I went into the army and then I came out and then I went to graduate school. And that successful formula had gotten changed in those intervening six or seven years that I was away. And so fundamentally it, it, for us, and it wasn't just me, it was the rest of the team. We could see that the business that was there among the eight that were Me Too businesses, there was one that wasn't a Me Too business. There was one that really stood out and was uniquely different. You know, basically our industry, uh, the QSR industry, quick service restaurant industry, is driven by a, a huge tailwind. After the Second World War, about one in three women worked outside the home. By the year 2000, that was two out of three women were working outside the home. Mm -hmm. So the, they needed a convenient place to be able to replace the food that they were making and uh, family was relying upon them. And convenience and value dr drove it. And we saw ourselves in different day parts with a business that no one else had that was leading with not necessarily donuts, but with coffee and a bakery. And bakeries were disappearing off the scene. So we had a way to fill something that it so solved the problem for the American consumer that was changing dramatically. And, and, and that the other businesses that we had were no different than other pancake houses, other hamburger stands, um, other pizza parlors. Uh, but this one was unique. And really, we really had a tiger by the tail in our view that we could really streamline it. If we really focused on that and kept making it better, that we could really thrill the consumer. We thought that, you know, People had a need early in the morning for pick-me-up to start their day. Mm -hmm. Their biorhythms throughout the day required other further kinds of uh, mm -hmm. pick and and putting a, a, a jump in their step. I mean, I, I think there's a reason why this tea time has existed for all these years. Yes. People need it in the course of their day. Same thing for mid-morning coffee break. There's a reason for it. It's part of the human condition. And we had a way to, to meet that better than anybody else. So we didn't have a lot of competition. In the morning, the only restaurants that were open, I think, in New England where we started were Howard Johnson. And uh, that had already passed a second generation uh, leader who didn't have as much interest in the business, didn't even live close to the office. He lived in New York. And so we didn't have a lot of competition in that category, mm. filling a need no one else had. And we saw that opportunity. So the category was more sort of breakfast, start your day. And, and then, then take home at night dozens of donuts for breakfast the next morning. Yeah. And so it was part bakery and part coffee shop. And no one had made coffee the centerpiece of their menu at that time. Basically, yep. most people don't realize that they'd be astounded today if I told you 
that coffee was on a 50-year decline from 1950 to 2000, that the average gallonage of coffee went from 40 gallons per capita down to 20. Basically, mm. colas were taking over, and people were getting their coffee at home with Nescafe, if you remember that brand. I sure Instant do. coffee, bad product, Maxwell, cheap, robust product. And there wasn't anyone who was making coffee as the centerpiece of their business. And coffee is a wonderful product, and cold or hot. And, One uh, I love every day. <laughs> and many and times a day, I hope. Sometimes, yeah. I have at least two a day. And this may sound like a corny thing, but for me, the uh, integration or the pairing of, of, of what you're drinking and what you're eating matters a lot. You know, so like if I'm having a burger and I decide to have a beer, well, I want, I want the beer and the burger at the same time. I want a fresh, cold beer when I have the burger, right? Or, you know, in the case of coffee, to your point, there's nothing better than a coffee and a donut. I, and I, when you have, and you can have either one of them alone and they're great, but when you put them together, it's like the right glass of red with the right steak or the, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those pairings in life that just seems to make us happier, doesn't it? I agree. I agree. You can say it's it's a little bit of the acidity of the coffee along with uh, the sweetness of the of the donut. They balance each other out, and they they do complement each other dramatically well. And then, so based Robert on this, I would describe it as a simple, powerful insight around coffee and the decline of bakeries at the time and so forth that you just described. You scaled up uh, one of the biggest restaurant retail chains ever how did you do that <laughs> well uh great people great team uh and 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 a, and, a, and an aspiration i think in order to grow and in order to overcome the normal setbacks that occur in life you have to be aspirational our culture was aspirational we'd like to win we set ourselves um reasonable goals and and we we had a lot of competitors to beat back at the time you don't know of them today but there were companies like amy joy best eaton uh, on the west coast winchell's and uh, texas shipley's and lone star uh, pelton spudnuts tim horton in the north i mean we had a lot of a lot of competitors and and basically uh i, I think that we did it through superior strategies the ability to to build on the value of our brand through real commitment to product quality and through a great organization and an incredible team of complementary uh, personalities, skilled in marketing, purchasing, um, in all aspects of our business uh, and a great, incredible group of franchise owners who worked hard day to day to execute and to provide help and feedback and ideas. Uh, and so uh, fundamentally, I tell my story in the book through like the lens, each of these six eras of five years each, uh, through the lens of what a CEO does, which is to shepherd strategy, to recruit and retain an organization to implement that strategy, to communicate like crazy continuously all the time in order to align all the constituents behind that strategy. And then the fourth activity I see is fundamentally uh, uh, stewarding uh, in times of crisis. And that always occurs in life and occurs in business. You don't necessarily pick the times it comes but believe me if you're there for 35 years it's gonna come and mm -hmm. you have to be prepared for that and because you know in day-to-day -day activities things come in over the transom constantly at you and if you're not sure where to what to put on your uh your calendar what things that are absolute musts like the four activities i described it's easy to get uh waylaid and, and in my view if the strategy isn't spot on and if the organization isn't appropriate and spot on, there's little else you can do in terms of activity that can save the day and create success. Yeah. And in our case, our organization was a set of complementary skills and no, no one person on a white horse coming in and deciding everything and, and uh, dictating and no command and control. It was very collaborative, collegial. We were together. Even back then, when that was the standard model for corporations, was a very strong command. I'm not, I'm not thrown that way. I mean, a lot of it, you know, some of it you got to be lucky. And in my case, I was lucky. I went into a business I knew a lot about. I had worked in the business since I was a kid at 14. 
from the all the jobs in the commissary to canteen cards mm-hmm. to running restaurants and cafeterias and spelling managers. So I had come up through the ranks. I I knew the language of the business. I and in those days there weren't a lot of a lot of top notch execs going into the restaurant industry. That they were going into consulting and and going into finance. They they weren't going into into the restaurant industry. But th- that's what spelled the difference. You asked, how did we scale it? We yeah. scaled it with good planning, uh, great people, and, and a real commitment to our products and, and to quality. I, I call it the three Ps. Uh, so it was planning people and, and products. Hmm. Interesting. The other sort of element that I wanted to ask you about, uh, this gentleman I've gotten to know a little bit. He's been on the podcast a few times, Joe Pine wrote this incredible book about 20 years ago called The Experience Economy, and he's up, updated it and continued to talk about it. And so when I think about what you were doing back then, uh, one of the things I wonder about is you had created this franchise model. You were scaling it very successfully. And somehow you managed to not only have consistency of product uh, so that when I went into one location in one state and a different location in another, I could count on the coffee being the same quality. I could count on my munchkins, et cetera. I also had a very similar experience and it was a positive experience. You walk in the door, of course, it smells great. The uniforms had a very distinctive look. Uh, my memory, particularly, I'm just thinking back to when I was a kid, you know, because uh, go, going to Dunkin' Donuts when you're a kid is a very big deal. Not that it isn't today, but it was. it's a really big deal when you're seven, right? And so there seemed to also be not just a consistency of product and quality along those lines, but also what today we might call a consistency of experience across a franchise network, which, of course, is owned by different individuals in, in different locations. And so I'm leading to a question here, Robert, which is back then, how did you think about sort of the consistency of product as well as the consistency of experience when you didn't own these companies? They were franchises. And it started right from the get-go. We would we would start when someone joined us. We would start them at Dunkin' Donut University, a six-week inculcation program. And uh, within weeks, I had worked for McDonald's as one of my assignments. My dad, because he was going into the hamburger business, and I was intrigued by their McDonald's U and not afraid to borrow a good idea when I saw one. Within weeks of my assuming the the CEO ship of the company, I instituted something called Dunkin' Donut University. And it was uh, four weeks of, uh, of product quality training and two weeks of management. I would address every incoming class in terms of what we were about, what our purpose was in life, what we wanted to be. And, um, and then on an ongoing basis, we had an opening crew that helped them get started. And then we had a district manager for every... 20 stores, and then ultimately became probably every 20 owners uh, in order to be able to work with them to keep the communications up. We had advisory councils where we would have elected representatives. We have district meetings where we would caucus together in terms of what our objective was for store profitability, what strategic levers we were going to pull. We used the same planning language throughout the company so that everybody knew you know, where we were going to put our emphasis in order to marshal scarce resources to the achievement of our objectives. And, uh, and then we would have major seminars. We brought everybody together, but it, it, it was a, it, it was a hierarchical organization because people expected consistency throughout, yeah. <laughs> throughout all stores, but it was supplemented with this high touch activity where we would meet with people one-on-one in their stores, where we would communicate the culture and the way we would do business, that we wanted to be in this together with them. And that we were open to their participation, their help. We needed each other. And, and it was, you know, it didn't always work out well. And there were times, and I think it's even better today than it was back then. It's even getting better and stronger. But those were some of the mechanisms that we used, some of the processes and the procedures that we used in order to achieve that. Fascinating. Now, tell me about ice cream. Ice cream. I love ice cream. Jamoga. Yeah, who, who doesn't? Great, great isn't ice cream, favorite. aren't ice cream sales going through the roof right now with COVID going on and all that? It could well be. I, I, I can tell you I love ice cream. That's what I can tell you. Now. And I eat my share every day. So. <laughs> but Baskin Robbins has a similar story to Duncan. I didn't join Baskin. We, we were under hostile attack back in the late 80s. And in 1990, 
Uh, I found a white knight to help save us from the grasp of a hostile predator. And the company was called Allied Lions, then to become Allied Demek, a British company that had acted as a white knight for, for lots of businesses. And they were in the food business. They had thousands of pubs, and they also had a huge spirits business. They owned some great brands like Kalua and, and Beef Eater and uh, Canadian Club. And, and uh, they came in, and, and they, they had owned Baskin Robbins and bought it from United Fruits in the 1970s. And uh, they were unsure whether or not I would, in fact, stay on as an entrepreneur once they bought the company and acted as a white knight. And we got along well. And uh, ultimately, they gave me the responsibility in 1993 for both brands. So I was running Duncan and Baskin. And um, I took the head of, uh, of marketing for Duncan and asked him if he wouldn't move to California to our office in Glendale and assume responsibility for Baskin, the thousands of stores. and and um, and he, luckily, he took the job. And uh, the first things we did, at, 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 that he did, was to create a beverage at Baskin. He, he was quick to see uh, that their head of, uh, of production, a guy by the name of Tony Joy, had great capabilities in terms of flavors and, and things and had been uh, cold brewing for hours, great coffee flavors. And he used that as the base for something called Cappuccino Blast, which was a huge hit. First mm -hmm. thing that, that the new president, the guy by the name of Glenn Batchelor, did when he got to Glendale was to introduce the first beverage to Baskin. It was a huge success. Again, coffee. It was a beverage. Exactly. Coffee-based beverage. But that's not where the story ends. And on the basis of that, I said, well, maybe we could do the same thing at Duncan. Even though I was running both businesses, it took me almost two years to migrate that idea over to Duncan. <laughs> Duncan got a hold of it, and they created something called Culata, which was based on Baskin's capabilities for flavorings. And it was a, a delicious, cold, caffeinated beverage in a, in a soft machine that, that, that whipped it. And overnight, Duncan had a, about a $300 million afternoon, midday coffee break business that we had heretofore not had as a mm. result of the, of the two brands coming together. Wow. So it, there was synergies between the businesses. We co-located some stores. We still do when it makes sense uh, under one owner to have two businesses and two brands together. Uh, one that does most of his business late at night and hours that Duncan isn't particularly busy. And um, Basket is a phenomenal international brand. Uh, Baskin was affected back before I took over and became responsible for it by the introduction of a lot of packaged goods products by Ben and Jerry's and Hagen does. They came out with specialty high-grade ice creams that competed against Baskin's ice cream. You know, before in, before the that period of time, mid '80s, uh, before Hagen does and and uh, and, uh, and Ben and Jerry's. You know, the only place you really could get Jamocha almond or pralines or cream or anything like that that was interesting and that was flavor filled. Mm -hmm. And different was from Baskin. And then we had a lot of competition show up in 100,000 points of distribution between supermarkets and, and convenience stores, uh, but not so much overseas. And overseas, uh, they were less, less affected. And people across the world love American brands, particularly American fast food brands. That's a hmm. huge hit. And so Baskin is a phenomenal business internationally. How fun. And if I remember correctly, Robert, you folks were one of the very first to begin this idea of putting two businesses that were complementary, not competitive, either directly next to each other or certainly in close proximity, if I, if I remember correctly. That's correct. That was uh, an initiative that we experimented with. Remember, it's a lot of things you have to try. And that was one of the things that we tried. Less, less important today than it was then. It, it had a, it showed a lot of promise, but it became a little bit more complicated in execution than we originally anticipated. So you won't see a lot of that. There were there were two brands that were doing that. We and, and also at the time the Pepsi Cola brands of Yum um, now called Yum Restaurants, which were Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and um, and Taco Bell, were also co-locating, and, yeah. and 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 they too seemed to move away from it a bit as we did, as it, as it became a great idea on paper but less, uh, less able to execute effectively all the time in person. We still have men, I mean, they still do phenomenally well, and we still grow that way when, when it makes sense. But it isn't the key part of the way we go to market. 
Yes. Now, I also have to ask you as a, as a uh, marketeer, a three-time chief marketing officer myself, you folks ruled out one of the most uh, cultural touchstone type campaigns of all time with It's Time to Make the Donuts. Yep. 17 years, won three Clios, huge success. So tell me all about It's Time to Make it. And as a matter of fact, to this day, you will still hear people, if they got to do something or they're out in the garden or they got to go you know, get on a call or something, people from time to time will still say, sorry, I got to go. It's time to make the donuts. It, yeah. it, 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 it became a cultural touchstone. It became a phrase for let's get busy, let's get to work. So I'd love to hear the inside story of it. Well, it was actually a part of experimentation by Ali and Gargano, who were our ad agency at the time. And, and we had made some commercials. Uh, basically, we were aiming a lot on bakery products, and we were aiming them against supermarkets. So you might remember Fred Michael Vale, who was the actor who played Fred the Baker, the lovable for 17 years, would say. Incredible. Go through the turns. He was as beloved as a TV star was beloved. I, he and I, you know, one day a year, we would work in stores. And he and I worked in the first store in Quincy uh, one year together. And the lines were out the door to get his autograph. <laughs> the guy, the guy was, he was loved. a TV star. He was loved and he loved it. He loved it. He would dress in his Fred, the Baker uniform. And, and uh, so we were aiming primarily at supermarkets. So it was lighthearted, but it was competitive advertising and it worked effectively well, but it turned like most. Because you were like, saying their donuts aren't fresh and ours are. Exactly. Yes? Right. And, 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 uh, Basically, what happened is when I moved the guy from uh, Duncan Marketing to Baskin, the guy who replaced him was a guy by the name of Will Cussell who had run some worldwide businesses for Reebok. He came in and he said, you know, I don't think you guys are as crisp as you should be with respect to whether or not you're a bakery or you're a coffee shop. You're kind of mixed up. Let me do a positioning study. And I said, how much is that going to cost? And he said, well, it's going to cost about $250,000. Oh, my God, $250,000. I thought we were very sophisticated marketers. We used McCollum Spielman. We used all kinds of ways, attitude and usage studies every year. I mean, we were really on our game. And and Jack Schaefer, who is now the president of Duncan, because I had now two brands reporting to me, came to me and he said, you know, let's give Will his way. He's brand new. He's really a good guy. You know, let's spend the money. And so off this guy, Rick Rakowski, went. And he came back and he said, you know, you guys, over time, your business has changed dramatically. You've changed the, your service delivery system. You've gone to self-service. Things are different. You don't serve coffee and porcelain cups anymore. Do you realize that 60, 65% of your business is beverages and that you really are advertising donuts and that really we should start all campaigns with a C plus one equals three. And I first sat there and I said, oh, my God, I spent $250 for this. And the more <laughs> we talked about it, the more it became clear he was right, that we really had migrated over and had not been paying that much attention. This is the day before all these computerized registers and you get daily inputs in terms of balance of trade and what's selling. You know, we were basically going on old data. And the business right before our eyes had been changing rather dramatically after we had changed the configuration of our stores. And we sort of lost touch. And as a result of that, Fred the Baker was retired after 17 years. We had a parade in downtown Boston. We made commercials. Larry Bird was retiring the same year. So Larry, we made commercial Larry Bird teaching Fred how to retire gracefully. <laughs> and, and we changed agencies to Hill Holiday. And, and, uh, and it was not in it. initially after my retirement, the next campaign came, which I think is phenomenal. America runs on Duncan. And that says it all in terms of who we are and what we do. And that's and it's been, been that way since, has it not? Isn't it yeah, still so, the tagline? Yep. Oh, yeah. And a great tagline. And it's so true. And say, if you go into a store today, you'll see, you know, Bristol runs on Duncan. It's on the side panel. Every community use, utilizes that. And it's true. It basically is the way people start their day, pick me up throughout the course of the day. America does run on Duncan. And that's the way we fill people's needs in their lives. That's the, the role we play. And and uh, it, and it, that that's how the transformation came from a, uh, and we were lucky we were lucky or maybe we were good but but basically we had a huge campaign for seventeen years with Fred and Michael Vale and now we have this unbelievable campaign of America runs on Duncan. 
Yeah, and I mean, you're one of the most beloved brands ever created, really. I think we are now seventh largest food service company in the country, in the world, probably, off of uh, a cup of coffee and a, and a donut. It's, it's pretty incredible. I have to pinch myself sometimes. It's, it's a wonder. Yeah, so let's maybe go there if we could, Robert. How, how does it feel to be you today? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know because I've never been anybody else. Uh, <laughs> it's always been the same. It, 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 you know, basically, um, the dream was to be engaged in a one, with a wonderful business. Then my second career, I was engaged to help other CEOs by serving on boards and, and uh, teaching at Babson College as an adjunct and as a trustee of the college. And then this third sort of act is now as an author and uh, trying to help others by, by virtue of sharing my experience. And I'm in the midst of sort of planning the next act, the next stage. So I think what it is like to be me, it's, it's like always to have a dream and always seem to be engaged in trying to fulfill that dream. And I find that that's generally outside of yourself and it isn't necessarily about money and not that it's unimportant, but after a certain point, it's hardly the way to measure a life. And the things that have worked well for me since I was a kid continue to work well. And I think of myself as incredibly blessed, um, blessed with a great family, great family relationships, and, uh, and still have dreams that get me up in the morning and keep me excited. That sounds wonderful. And as you're in this uh, professor, author, I would call you sensei stage of your life, um, what are the big things that you hope to um, teach other entrepreneurs and business leaders? And basically, I offer these experiences as a way to see if they resonate with them. I find, uh, as I said, I think earlier, the book is really a buffet of ideas. Different people are at different stages. So there isn't any one lesson I think that stands out that's above all others. Some people are in the beginning and the entrepreneurial phase. Some people are adolescent growing a business. Other people have mature businesses. Other people are just trying to design a life. I find, at least for myself, when I attend a seminar, read a book, talk to a colleague, I generally get two, maybe three nuggets out of that conversation. And it's invariably in an issue that I am wrestling with. Mm-hmm. I am the student. When the student is ready, a teacher will appear. So here is this buffet that I'm providing in this book. And I suspect that different people will take different things out of it. Um, and, and that's my hope. My hope is that something will resonate, whether you're a father trying to organize your family or a mother, or whether or not you're a uh, uh, an entrepreneur and trying to decide whether to buy a franchise or go into business for yourself and what I say about apprenticeship. I mean, something in there hopefully will be of some help to you. And that's my hope. That's, and that's my dream. And, and, uh, I think if there was one overriding with two overriding thoughts for me that is that everything starts with leadership and it always starts at the top. It's like casting a stone in a pond. It casts a ripple throughout that pond. If the character is defaulted, it's faulty. If the if the person is arrogant, if if they're not managing well, if they're aiming at the wrong thing, everybody will follow, and there's nothing you can do to fix it until you replace that person at the top. Mm-hmm. The other thing that stood well is persistence. There's nothing that will take the place of persistence. You will find yourself in life, at least I have, and I suspect most of us others have found ourselves falling, and the need to have to get up and continue on, and and uh, and those two things, I think, have stood well, and those were things I'd pass along. Fantastic. Uh, you know, on the persistence thing, do you find that sometimes people give up too early? Yes. Yes. It's basically, it's all about second and third tries. It took us three tries to get it right. Luckily, we had enough cash to be able to do that. But, you know, and that's true of almost every business. Most Most businesses start with a dream and an idea, but they don't always look like the way they were originally envisioned. You usually falter. And Almost never, right? A little. It's messy business. And, and you have to search around a bit to get it right. In our case, it started as open kettle uh, in 1948, and that wasn't successful. And by happenstance and circumstance of serendipity, we changed it and remodeled it, and it became successful. And then we lost our way in the next five years. Then 
The next team of management came by and fixed that and started again and rebirthed the business, not from Universal Food System, but to Dunkin' Donuts. And it, that's three tries. Yeah. It's three tries. So if you gave up on the first one, when it opened his open kettle, it'd be no business. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of nights where you're sitting there going, why am I freaking doing this? Right. This is, I'm bashing my head against the wall here. Yeah. Well, that's where the love comes in. I think, you know, that's what sort of drives you. If you really like it and, and you like the people and you like the business and you really think there's an opportunity. I mean, there were times when we faced tough times. We faced extinction many times, at least three times I can point through throughout the career, throughout my time, where we faced absolute extinction. And, uh, and each time we gathered ourselves up and we basically pressed on and solved the problem and went on and we survived. And we ran the hostile takeover tech. The guy that was trying to buy us, the predator from Canada, ultimately went bankrupt and he would have taken the company with him. A class action lawsuit, which would have put the company out of business. Franchisees and company management together worked together to, to manage the suit. And we got out of that, but we were. I mean, the company's market value at the time was maybe $20 million and the suit was for $80 million. We, we would have never survived. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of times uh, there are those near-death experiences. So you, you do need persistence. And how do you keep going in those moments where it, you, you're feeling like you're on the precipice of the end? Yeah, it's, I, I, that's a good question. I, 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 I think it's in your personality. I mean, in my own life, personal life, even at a young age, I didn't face any real horrible dilemmas, but I didn't get into the college of my choice. I was crestfallen. And I went to my second choice, and lo and behold, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I, you know, I got straight A's and became a student leader and a big man on campus. I transferred immediately to the school of my first choice. And you know, I didn't win any awards when I first went to camp. And, and I got turned down for my 10-month uh, OCS in the Coast Guard and got accepted for a three-year commission. And I went at the reserves and I became platoon leader and other, learned other skills. So I've kept finding that every disappointment came with a second, third bite of the apple and it seemed to work out. And so I came with that kind of notion, don't give up, keep, keep swimming, shut up and keep swimming. Something will turn up and generally speaking, it always seems to work out. At least it did for me. I was very lucky. Unbelievable. Robert, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we laugh? No, I, I think that <laughs> you, you, you got most of what I have to offer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling that's not even close to true, but uh, I really do appreciate this time. I, I want to thank you so much for writing your new book. I think it's really important. There's so many great lessons and stories, and uh, I just love that a guy uh, in your position, a guy in your stage of your career, took the time to do this. I know how hard it is to write a book like this. And, um, and so I want to thank you for that. And I really want to thank you for our time together today. Thank you. Enjoyed it terrifically. My pleasure. Come back anytime, Robert. Love to. There he is, the legendary Robert Rosenberg. And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, it would mean the world to us if you shared it with somebody that uh, you think this would make a difference to. Today, more than ever, every business needs every advantage. That's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, and every business needs to stay on top more than ever of their finances, their HR, their inventory, their accounts receivable, their cash position, and many businesses have had to either go online or dramatically increase their digital business, and NetSuite has a full capability around multi-channel e-commerce. With NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. Whether you're doing a million a year or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to manage your business during any kind of economic situation. Visit netsuite.com slash different where you can schedule your free product tour today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And uh, my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Tens of thousands of IT, security, and business professionals rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data. Data in motion, data at rest, structured data, unstructured data, it doesn't matter. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. So get empowered today to bring data to everything at splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. All right, we would like to thank, well, certainly we would like to thank you. Thanks again for pressing play and the legendary Robert Rosenberg. 
incredible. His new book is out now. Pick up a copy. Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned in Running Dunkin' Donuts. I also want to say thank you to Jess Butler for helping to make this fantastic episode happen. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org will help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Visit the letter, uh, the number one, (laughs) the letter one, uh, LifeFullyLived.org today. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. And they've been physically distancing before physically distancing was a thing. So if you need a legendary assistant who's distant, check out bottleneck.online. Try saying that 10 times fast. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net and they will help you conquer your category. And if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, why not visit my friends at gocheetah.com? They provide wholesale groceries and restaurant supplies for your business and for your home. Check out GoCheetah.com today. And if you can make a difference by writing a check or donating your time to a nonprofit, now's a great time to do it. So if you can, please. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We would also encourage you, if you're in marketing, check out Lockhead on Marketing. Uh, You know, it doesn't suck. All rights do remain perturbed. We're produced and edited by uh, living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. We uh, Technical execution, Lockhead.com, and other technical awesomeness around here are performed by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. And the left lane is the fast lane. Pull over and let us go by. Listen to Van Halen. Remember to eat lots of donuts. Get out and vote. It's the most patriotic thing you can do. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Stay legendary. And of course, till we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>